0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Fellowship Greenville Student Ministry Podcast. We are continuing our series through the book of James and this week the advice that James wants to pass along to us is you will make mistakes. But he also calls us into the reality that in those mistakes, God is still good and has chosen us to do good through him. Follow along, we hope you enjoy this message. Amen. Thank you, Evie. You guys can grab a seat. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to Fellowship Greenville. Johnny, thanks so much for leading us, brother. Welcome to Fellowship Greenville, students. My name is Matt Dinsky. I'm a student ministry pastor here at Fellowship Greenville. If you don't know me, it's so good to finally get to know you and meet you. Uh, You might notice I have a fishing pole uh, with a mystery box. If you know anything about me, you know I love sports and I am a master angler. That's what, they, that's what we, sorry, that's what we call ourselves, us fishermen. So I have here um, a mystery box, guys. There's something inside of this box. Uh, does anyone want this box? Really? Uh, so here's the deal. My my uh, reel, this is what it's called, a reel. It does not have a handle. I can't reel it in, my guy. <laughs> so I'm going hybrid here. I, this is, this is on loan from a dear brother of mine. Um, listen, th- this is a mystery box. It has something inside of it. Uh, here's the deal, though. Whatever is inside of this, you have to eat it. If you are the one, if you are the one who wants this, you have to eat it. I can't necessarily cast it out that far. Uh, Hannah, Tom, any girls over here? Anybody? Annabelle, did you peek earlier, though? You kind of took a peek earlier. All right, Zoe. All right, here we go. Zoe, I'm going to go third row. Guys, my reel is broken, okay? No, I know that. But once I do that, I can't reel it back in, my guys. All right, here we go. All right, here we go. Nice. Oh, Zoe, that's okay. We're going to go again. Catch Zoe! Oh, give it up for Zoe, guys. What is it, Zoe? What is it? Oh, it's a donut. Zoe, do you like donuts? Oh. Wow. Okay. Well... Because I have another, I have another donut. What that, no, Evie! I gonna. Hey, oh, Evie, Evie! My goodness. And I think I hit Olivia. Did I hit you? I have never hit a student with a glazed baguette. Yang! All right. B- bump the. Bang! All right. Oh! That's a really, really good interception. Like out of nowhere. Yes. I am a master fisherman. I am. I'm so glad you guys asked. Master angler. Um, listen, Ellie, that's, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes they bite <laughs> and they let it go. It's just part of fishing. I've learned that. I know that. All right, so guys, uh, the truth is, I'm not the most experienced fisherman, but I have been fishing a few times. Uh, I've been deep sea fishing a couple of times, which was pretty fun. Uh, I did some canal fishing a few times in like brackish water where it's fresh and salt and you can kind of get some uh, cool things going there. I've done lake fishing, is that what they call it? Someone help me out, lake fishing. Fresh water, thank you with bodies of water, where you like, you know, you're out there and yeah, you do that. And, uh, and I've done fly fishing in like creeks and streams and rivers. That's my favorite. I think fly fishing is, is the best of them all because it's the most fun and engaging. But I've, I've fished a few times. And one of the things, no matter where you're at, no matter the change in uh, type of water or environment or whatever, no matter the change in gear or equipment, the one thing that holds true when it comes to fishing is... You need the right lure. Am I right? Fisher people in the room? Okay, you need the right lure, okay? You cannot just throw a bear hook in the water and expect to get much with it. You need to entice the fish, which requires a little bit of research, right? If you're going for a type of fish, you're gonna want to put a specific kind of lure on. When I came out and I had my mystery box, the moment that you heard like, oh we have to eat it. We don't really know what it is. About half of the hands who desired it went down. The other half, you guys are just bold and kind of wild, especially after we made Evie eat a bag of crickets at Epic. I was really surprised that any of you would still trust us because that was disgusting. Yeah, you, you really don't. But when, you, when it was a mystery box, it was like, uh, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. But when you saw that it was a donut and it was safe, and those are fresh, got them this morning. When you saw it was a donut, when you saw it, All of a sudden, it's like, oh, I know what that is, and I I want that, some of you. No matter where you fish or how you fish or what you're fishing for, understanding the right lure makes all the difference. And there are companies that put a lot of money into this. There are companies that design lures to mimic uh, the the sight, sometimes even smells, and sometimes even movement of particular types of bait. And so you have lures that actually move, like a, a worm wriggling in water, or a frog with a broken leg that's like, you know, suffering and trying to get away. And that movement entices fish towards it. Or some kind of bug or whatever. Uh, when I went fly fishing a couple years ago, I was up in North Carolina. And in fly fishing, it's a little bit different. Because you, you don't just reel as hard as you can or try to throw it in one spot. In fly fishing, you actually have to like create momentum with your line. And then feed your line out to get it longer. And at the very end of the line, you have this itty bitty tiny Uh, artificial fly. And people have mastered the craft of making these things look real, these different types of bugs. And so you're literally flying it over this river or stream or creek, and you're trying to land it in kind of just the right spot, in just the right shadows, where the the water comes in and creates just the right amount of oxygen in there. And, And you're trying to aim it, but you're trying to also make it look like a bug. And once you land it, Sometimes when you're fly fishing, you've got this whole line out and the water takes your line downstream faster than the actual fly. And so it's called mending your line. You have to pick up your rod and actually flick your whole line over this way without disturbing the fly that's still floating on the water. And the whole point of this is you are trying to do everything imaginable to trick that fish into thinking this is a real fly. Don't pay attention to the nylon yellow line. Don't pay attention to this thing floating by. Mend that. This is a real fly. It just happened to land right above you. Go ahead and catch it. And then, as you guys know, the fish come in and latch on. And everybody who's ever been fishing knows that that feeling. You've got a window, this little brief window, where your line gets hit. It gets tugged. Your pole kind of does a little dip. And what do you do? You set the hook. (laughs) you set it. Oftentimes, like with Evie, I set way too quick and my lure goes bouncing up in the sky and I hook my friends, and that's okay. It just happens. But you try to set your hook because you're trying to catch that fish. One of the things I've always been amazed by is, like, on this planet, there's some very smart animals. There's very smart creatures that God has made. You guys know that. Like, there are monkeys who have flown rocket ships. Like, there, there are smart animals on this planet. It is my humble opinion that fish are not in that category. Like I've always been amazed at how seemingly dumb fish are. And so you will have fish like hanging out in water together. I don't know if they're, I don't know if they talk, but in my mind, they're just hanging out. They're like, it's a nice day. It is a nice day. And all of a sudden, this thing lands right above them. And I was like, oh, Hank, it's your turn, man. I It's you. This one's on you. I I got the last bug. Hank's like, oh, dude, thanks so much. I I really appreciate it. And Hank swims up. And all of a sudden, (laughs) like Hank goes out of the water. And meanwhile, his buddy is like looking at this whole ordeal like, oh, that was bizarre. I got to make sure I don't eat that kind of bug. And then in the next five seconds, that same kind of bug lands right in front of him. He's like, "Mm, does look pretty good, though. And what does he do? He swims up and gets yeeted out of that stream. I've always been amazed at how, like you would think logically, maybe it's just me, maybe you guys don't think, that, but if you are a fish and you see your buddy get pulled out of the water at lightning speed after eating a particular kind of bug, I don't know, I would catalog that bug at least for the next few hours, don't touch it, something weird is going on here. And yet fish are not that way. There is something in their nature. They can see all their buddies get yanked out. And there is something in their nature that whenever that bait drops in, and it's pulled just right, and it mimics movement, and it looks just right, it's like, ooh, but I really want that. Like, I know what just happened to my friend, but that is a juicy-looking fly. Can I get an amen? amen? Maybe it won't happen to me. Maybe I'm the one fish who can take it and not get out of the water. And isn't that just like our sin sometimes? I was having a conversation with some students recently, just a couple weeks ago, and they asked me, they are like, man, you know, like, we would love to learn more about how to navigate through our sin. Like, how, how do we actually wrestle with our sin? How do we overcome our sin? How do, we, how do we resist temptation? How do we actually do this? How do we not give in to sin? And it's a great question. Because the reality is, I think for all of us, there are two conflicting desires going on. Um, ancient, Ancient Jewish scholars believed that every single person in them has a set of good desires and a set of evil desires, and these things are oftentimes battling each other in the outcome of your life. And if you're like a really, really bad person, you will choose evil desires more often than not. But if you're a really, really good person, you'll choose righteous desires more often than not. But the reality is the majority of the population fits in the middle. Like, I'm not like really evil, dude, but I wouldn't say I'm necessarily like super righteous. And so I'm wrestling with these conflicting desires. And so it's true of us. We have these things within us that we're like, dude, I... I just want to be done with that particular sin. That thing is killing me, man. It is killing me. And I return to it time and time again. And every single time, I know, I know what the consequences will be. And it it might be fun at first, and it might be exciting for a brief amount of time. It might be enjoyable for a window. But ultimately, if you've ever been down this road, you know at the end of this road leads to feeling more hollow And worse off, filled with regret and just a terrible aching of unsatisfaction. And I think most people have the awareness to understand that there are certain decisions in my life that lead me to outcomes that are entirely disastrous. And yet, like a juicy fly dropping right in front of me, I know what will happen And I just can't resist this. Like my friend, literally, just made the same decision, and he's gone. Like whoop! And yet, ah, it's right in front of me. It looks really good, and 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 everything in our internal desires is being triggered to latch on to that choice. Have you ever been there? Are you there? Is this describing kind of where you're at? The Apostle Paul kind of frames it this this way. If you look in Romans chapter 7, I have it up on the screen here for you, but Paul says this in Romans chapter 7. He's describing this inner conflict that goes on within people. Do we have it, guys? Thank you. Paul says this, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate doing. Now, I do what I do not want. I agree with the law that it's good, so it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then look at 18. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does this describe you? Have you ever felt like Paul? Man, I... i I, th- I want to follow jesus like i I, I want to get this thing right i don't want to have this like double minded life where I have this kind of pretend church world and then i 'm kind of living however I, I I genuinely want to follow jesus and yet. There are things in my life, maybe my private life, or maybe I'm publicly struggling with, if I'm really, really honest, I just can't seem to give them up. I have a desire to give them up. I'm not intentionally rebelling against God. I want to let them go. I don't want to sin. And yet every time they're in front of me, I just keep latching on, knowing the outcome. That lure looks so enticing to me. It is my Achilles heel. It is my weak spot. I I wish I didn't do these things. Paul is describing this struggle. I desire to do good, but I don't do it. I don't want to do evil, but that's what I end up doing. I am wrestling with these conflicting things within me. Have you ever been there? Are you there? And this isn't just like a decision or an action. This could be a person in your life. It could be a memory in your life, it could be a behavior, a pattern, a habit, something secret, something public, a desire, a thought. We all kind of have these Achilles heels that are unique to us, these like pitfalls. It's like we have the desire to not give in, and yet every time we go near them, it's like, ah. I did it. I can't believe I did it again. I know where that will lead, and I did it again. Are you in the wrestling match of good desires versus evil desires? Is there there some kind of bait hanging in front of you, some lure that looks just right for you, and you're like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to give in again, but man, it looks so good. What if this time's different? What if this time? You know that feeling. It's a normal human experience if we live in a broken world, and we do. We live in a Genesis 3 world. So the question is, what do we do about it? And does James offer any advice for us? So last week, we began a study through the book of James. So a little bit of context about James. James is the brother of Jesus Christ, which is pretty significant So the other apostles who wrote books in the New Testament, some of them got a few years with Jesus. James literally grew up in the home with Jesus. He's his brother. And interestingly, James did not believe in Jesus when he was younger. He did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And so James has a really unique perspective. I grew up in the home with this man, and I don't believe him. I did not think he was Messiah. And then later in life, James would come to believe Jesus is actually who he said he was. What was the triggering event that led James to believe? Do you guys remember? Resurrection. It's hard to argue. Hey, you were dead, but now you're back. I guess you were God. You know, like, it's hard to argue that one. So James believed. And then James started following him. And eventually, James would write this letter to people of God who are on the run for their lives because widespread persecution is breaking out all over Jerusalem. And so James, remember, he gets right to the point really quick, and he's giving advice, almost like a dad to his children, because he loves us and he wants us to thrive in our faith. And so if you remember, the book of James is kind of like dad advice for the Christian life. Last week's dad advice is, life is hard. Life is hard, but your perspective can determine your destination. We looked at the concept of being tested in the faith. This week, we're going to continue the book of James. James has some more dad advice for us this week. I have three bullet points I think James wants to pass on to the spiritual children, to his spiritual children. Here's the three bits of dad advice James wants you to know this week. James says this, you'll make mistakes in life. All right, so imagine Father James Sitting down with his kids, that's us, and he's kind of of having one of those dad talks. He sits us down, he throws out his hand, he puts his hand on our shoulder. He says, listen, I want you to know something about life. You're going to make mistakes in life. You're going to blow it. You're going to choose things that are so unwise. You're going to do things that cause a lot of pain to yourself and to those around you. You're going to make a lot of mistakes in this life. But here's what I want you to know. Do not fall into the trap of blaming others for the outcome of your choices. Anybody, anybody ever know someone who does that just on the regular? They've made a lot of bad choices in life, and those bad choices have taken them to a destination that's a direct result of their unwise decisions, and yet they're so frustrated and angry about the outcome of their life, they just begin to blame everyone and everything about the reality of their life. It's not my fault, it's their fault. Man, if that teacher would have given me a chance, if they wouldn't have, man, if, if they wouldn't have given me that grade, dude, if that, if that officer had let me go with a warning instead of a tick, like, it's always someone else's fault for our own actions, and we just blame, 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 blame. James wants to sit us down and say, hey, look, 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 I get it. Life is hard. You will make mistakes in the journey, but don't blame others for the outcome of your decisions. Here's, what, here's the last thing James wants you to know. God is good, gives good, and does good. That's this week's dad advice from James. You'll make mistakes. Don't blame others for the outcome of your decision. And remember this, God is always good, gives good, and does good. When I was growing up, we used to say this, God is good, all the time. Some of you are still steeped in those southern roots. We'd say, God is good. And the crowd would say, all the time. The preacher would say, all the time. <laughs> yeah. Amen, brother. That's that, Tre- that's that Trevin Rice sermon right there. Man. All right. Trevin, I love you, brother. James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Coming off of what we talked about last week, life is hard. You will go through trials, you will go through tests, your perspective can determine your destination. James chapter 1 verse 13, James says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. All right, let's pause here. So if you have the ears to hear it, you picked up on the word. When he is lured. All right? This is why we're talking about fishing. This is why Matt's fishing with donuts. James is using this terminology. He's using the image of a lure that draws you into sinning. So apparently what was going on is... Remember, James is writing to a group of people who were on the run for their lives. They were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. They were being economically persecuted. They were being physically persecuted. And some of them have reached the conclusion, you know what, you know what? Life is so hard, God is not good. That's some of the, that's, that's the conclusion some of them were reaching. Maybe you're there. Maybe you've thought that before. Maybe you know people who think that regularly. Life's not fair. God's not good. So apparently there were some people who were coming to the conclusion because my life is hard. God's not good. He must be. He it's his fault. He must be putting things in front of me to make life hard for me. It's his fault, not mine. Remember James's dad advice. He's sitting down with his hand across the table, puts it on your shoulder, and says, "Hey, hey, hey, hey. You're gonna make mistakes." But don't blame others for the outcome of your decisions. God is good, gives good, and does good. It's his dad advice. And so some people were reaching the conclusion that because life is hard and things aren't going the way that they wanted them to go, that God must not be good, and it is God who is actually tempting me to fail. And James is calling us into this idea. Let no one say, it's a very, honestly, it's a very fatherly idea in in, in the Greek language. is like, don't you dare think that God would tempt you. That's not God's nature. That's not his character. God can't be tempted with evil himself, and he tempts no one. And so if you're in this room tonight, and life is hard, and you've kind of reached the conclusion God's the one to blame, God is the one making my life so hard, God is tempting me, and I'm failing, it is not God. God cannot be tempted with evil. He cannot be touched by evil. And God does not tempt his people to do evil things ever. So Matt, like, okay, but then where, so is it, is Satan the one to blame? If it's not God, is Satan the one to blame? It's kind of a logical question, right? But listen to the question. We're still trying to blame someone. And James would say, oh, son, 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 daughter, daughter, you will make mistakes. You will. Don't blame others for the choices that you make. Don't blame others for the outcomes of your choices. So it's really easy to, to be upset with God. I think it's even easier to be upset with the devil. Well, the devil made me do it. No, no. He might have put the lure in front of you. He didn't force you to bite What James is trying to remind us of and trying to get us to understand is this that if we go back to Genesis chapter three, you guys remember God created heaven and earth, and originally it was heaven on earth. We were in perfect harmony with God, perfect relationship with God, with each other, with creation, with ourselves. When we joined the rebellion, We created a brokenness to ourselves and to this world. That brokenness has created something within us that naturally desires to rebel against a holy God. Remember in the garden, God asked Adam and Eve, hey, practice restraint. Trust me to define and design what good and evil is. Don't reach out for the fruit and try to define that for yourself. And the the Bible says that Eve saw that the fruit was good and desired it. You guys remember that, Genesis 3? Eve saw and desired, and her desire led to sin, which eventually led to death. You guys know that when God originally created everything, we were never intended to die. Death is a result of sin, physical and spiritual. God was trying to prevent death from entering this world. We reached out, grabbed the fruit, because it looked good. It was just the right lure. The bait was just shiny enough. And he was like, ooh, some good-looking fruit right there. And she bit. And you guys remember, she gave it to her husband. And then God comes and has a conversation with Adam and with Eve. He's like, Adam, what have you done? And what was Adam's response? It was the woman. You gave me this woman. And let's not get it twisted. She's fine. But she tempted me to eat the fruit First thing Adam does is blame. God goes to Eve and he's like, what have you done? What did Eve say? God, I don't know what to tell you. I was in the garden hanging out and this talking snake just like s- s- slithered up and started talking about this fruit. And I was like, oh, that does sound good. It was not It was the snake. The first response is blame. And James is capturing this idea. That response to sin is still very much rooted in us. Sometimes, when our life is going crazy and it is bad, and we are kind of like in the dark and and we are feeling pain and and we are just hurting, we want to do everything we can to kind of look around and point who's at fault for that? Who, Who created this? Who's to blame? And James is saying, Hey, 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 if this is a result of your decisions, then you're the one, it's no one else. God is good, gives good, and does good. So Matt, is it Satan to blame? Well, it's kind of like this. We have three options. Option number one is God tempts you. James would say, eh, not an option. Option number two is Satan tempts you. Well, I think that is an option. Option number three is because we live in a broken world, there is something within ourselves that has a natural inclination to rebel against God. And that's also accurate. And so it's somewhere a combination of two and three. Satan tempts, but we choose. But still, we choose. And James wants to draw us to that truth. No one is forcing you to make decisions that lead to the pain you are experiencing in your life. In fact, Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Write this down, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says, hey, listen. Nothing can tempt you beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, God will provide a way out. James is, is, is inviting us into the hard truth. Remember, this is dad vice. We're sitting down at the table. He's not wasting a lot of time. He's throwing his hand on the shoulder, saying, Hey, hey, you're going to make mistakes. I get that. I understand. You're not perfect. No one is. You're going to blow it. But don't blame others for the choices you make and the outcome of those choices. And don't blame God because God is good, gives good, and does good. James is saying, Don't say, That when you're tempted, you're being tempted by God. God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There is something in every single one of us. This sinister, sneaky, deep-seated desire to rebel against God. And it manifests differently, but it's in us. Jesus teaches this same thing. Remember, James grew up in the home of Jesus. Jesus teaches this same thing in the uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Jesus says, for from within, out of the heart of men and women, come evil thoughts and evil things. It is within us. There is a desire within us. Which actually kind of creates some tension because it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Is every desire in us evil? No, 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 no. It's not. That's an extreme view. I am totally, I am wicked, nothing, everything about me is, no, 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 that's not true. For those who believe in Jesus, we've received his spirit, and he's bringing to life the dead parts of our heart and actually creating life from those things. So one extreme view is, I am entirely evil, that's extreme and inaccurate. The other extreme view, though, is, I am entirely good. And you may not claim this, but this one actually camouflages itself. It's a little sneaky. It kind of sounds something like this. Well, God created me, and he created me with certain desires. Like, if God made me, aren't those desires from God? And James is like, no, no. Brothers and sisters, James loves you, so he's speaking bluntly. I love you, so I'll say it bluntly, too. Not every desire you have is good. Would you agree with that? Okay. Some of you. Thank you, some of you. Hey, engage with me. A quiet church is a dead church. Would you agree with that? Thank you. But here's the question. But, Matt, okay, so logically we can admit not every desire we have is good, but not every desire we have is evil. How do you know... What are the good desires from the evil desires? Isn't that kind of the next question? Like, how, how would you discern good desires from evil desires? How do you know when you have a desire, is this of God? Is this how God has made me and wired me and uniquely created me? Because the Bible talks about God forming us in our, in our mother's womb and, and, and uniquely and wonderfully. Like, Is this of God or is this of this brokenness that I desire to rebuild? How would we know? It's a great question. And I love that question because what that question actually admits is there has to be some like standard of truth. There has to be something to define right from wrong, good from bad, light from darkness. And James, you're asking a great question because James is actually about to talk about that in the very next passage. He starts talking about the word of God. That this book actually serves as a way to distinguish evil from good thoughts and desires using this as kind of a mirror and holding it in front of us and seeing man do my desires line up with the word of god or are they out in left field and i'm just kind of playing the god card god made me so i get to do whatever i want don't judge me bible says don't judge james would say the bible acts as a mirror but he's, saying, he's talking about that next passage, so we're not getting into that tonight. That's next week. But yes, there's a standard. It's the Bible. You want to know how to discern if your thoughts are from God or from kind of this inner evilness? Go to the Word of God. James said, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There's, there's this idea of there's something dangling in front of you and something in you wants to bite. Verse 15, then that desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. Kind of strong language, right? Some of y'all are like, James, yeesh, take it easy, bro, but James loves us. And again, he's writing to people who are kind of like on the run. So he's not wasting time. He wants them to know there's things in you that desire to rebel. This desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. It's interesting language. What is James talking about here? Anyone? Baby. Da baby. No, he's not talking about the baby. I don't know why he's, he's talking about the baby. James is talking about a baby, not duh baby. Yeah, he's using he's using the language of of how life is made and formed. And so, what he, what he's talking about is this is is well. So you guys know, <laughs> you guys know I have kids. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's shocking. You guys know I have kids. And um, what you may or may not know, some of you guys know this, but I have three beautiful children. I have their names right here on my necklace. I have another pendant on my necklace. And a few years ago, Lauren and I went through a very, very painful miscarriage together. And we always did this thing. When, when my wife was pregnant, I don't know why, we, we would always do this thing where we would see, like, how far along she was and at like four weeks the baby's supposed to be the size of a and then you would use a tangible thing you know and at at 12 weeks the baby's supposed to be the size of a whatever and at at 16 it's supposed to be the size of a clementine and and 20 is the size of an apple or whatever so for this baby when when Lauren got pregnant um, both of us immediately had this strong impression on our hearts and souls that it was a little girl, which was really exciting, because I, I had always wanted a little girl. And so we both got the impression, wow, well, it's a girl, we think. And we both got the impression something's wrong. I mean, immediately. I remember the night she told me, and we both just felt this weight in the room, like something's not right. And I remember I, I put my hands on her stomach and we prayed together. Uh, and we did that thing where it was like, hey, you're, far, you're this far along, so how big's the baby? And, and for whatever reason, uh, when the baby was a certain amount of weeks along, it was as big as a, as a poppy seed. And poppy seeds are very tiny, right? It's as big as a poppy seed. And so we just started calling the baby Poppy. That's what we called it. And, um, and usually, you know, as, as it progressed, it'd be like, oh, you're, you're X amount Let's Let's start calling it Clementine. Let's start calling it <laughs> Watermelon. Who knows? But for whatever reason, for whatever reason, we just always called this little girl Poppy. And we sensed something was not right, but we were praying and, and hopeful, and, you know, visits to the doctor to kind of hear the heartbeat and, and, and look at the sonogram and all that were always a little scary. And um, at, a, at a certain course in the pregnancy, we, we went in, and we were, we were given the news that we kind of already knew to be true, which is something went wrong. The baby has stopped growing. The baby has stopped developing. There is no life inside of your womb. And a miscarriage is a, is a dreadful thing. It's a terrible thing um, because you get your hopes up. Like you get excited about the potential of something, about the possibility of something, about what's coming, and you start making plans. You might choose names or paint color for a room, or you might envision how they'll interact with other kids at home, or, or you just start like dreaming about what life will be like. And a miscarriage is the entire opposite of that. It, it's, it's, it's actually worse because it actually gave you hope and then rips that hope away. And I remember in the, in the doctor's office, even though we already knew, Lauren and I still just hearing it out loud from a professional care worker they just hit us, and, and I remember we, we just kind of quietly put our foreheads together and just looked at the floor and just began to weep with each other. And so this other little pendant I have is, is a poppy flower. And so, you know, one day I get to meet my little girl. But not yet. But the idea of a miscarriage, as hard as it is and as graphic as it is, is what James is leveraging to to try to help us understand what sin offers. That, that there's this thing dangling in front of you, this, this lure, and your desires are enticed. You are lured to this desire, and you want it. And you start to get excited about it. Ooh, what if we, ooh, you start to dream like, oh, oh man, this would be so exciting. This decision, this action, this relationship, sneaking around for a while, fooling around, making these choices, oh, I'm doing these things on the weekend, I'm making, like, it starts to get exciting, and you start to dream about it, and you start to kind of get your hopes up about what you think life will be, and James is saying, hey, listen, sin, once it conceives, gives birth to death, Sin offers hope. It actually makes you get your hopes up. It looks so good. You actually start thinking about how much better your life could be once you decide to do it. But once you give in to the lure, your desire leads to sin. Sin conceives and gives birth to death. There is nothing that sin can deliver but misery and regret. It's graphic language. It's sensitive. It's delicate And James is going there because he wants us to know it looks so good. It's so shiny just dangling there, and there's an impulse in you that wants it and actually starts to think of what your life would be like with it. But I'm telling you, once you actually get it, it will lead to pain and sorrow and death. Again, calling us back to the garden in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, when they disobeyed God, death entered the world. James rallies us to this idea, please do not be deceived by sin's appeal. It is appealing. That's why they call it temptation. It looks good. It will lead to pain. It will lead to sorrow. You don't even know the depth of shame and regret that exists until you go down this road time and time again. You don't know how badly you're going to wish you could take it all back You don't know the pain you're going to have. You don't know the rumors that are going to spread. You don't know how people are going to start looking at you. You can't even imagine the loneliness you're about to feel all because of this decision. James is doing everything he can, including using, this very delicate language, to help us understand it looks good. It leads to death. Please don't give it hope. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Remember, that can also be translated as my sons and daughters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's kind of a weird expression, Father of lights. What does that mean? James is bringing our attention to the lights in the heavenly places, stars, planets, and things like that. And he's kind of using this juxtaposition that as you observe constellations and stars and planets, one thing you will notice is that they move. There's constant shifting and movement based on the season or time of year. Sometimes you can see things with your naked eyes. Sometimes you can't you need a telescope. Sometimes there's light reflecting off a planet. Other times it's just not there. The sky changes, and, and James is saying the sky changes, the lights change, but every good gift that we have in this life comes from God to us From the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation. The stars may change, God does not. The stars may shift, God does not. The stars may move around, God never moves. Sometimes the planets change, God will not. There is no variation or shadow with God. He gives good, He is good, He does good. That's who God is. You're not being tempted by God, you're being tempted by your own desires. But God wants to give you good. Everything good in your life ultimately is from God. Whether that's like a huge, big blessing, like you get a new car or something like that, I'd say, man, that's a good gift. Way to go. That's a gift from God. Or whether that's the simple fact that before you came into this room tonight, most of you probably ate dinner and it was a pretty good dinner. And compared to the rest of the world, it was like top tier dinner compared to what most people in the world can afford. That's a good gift, too. There's little gifts. There's everyday gifts. There's huge gifts. There's big gifts. James is saying everything good in your life is from God. He wants to give good because he is good, and he does good. There's no change in him. Now look at verse 18. This is how he closes his train of thought here of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, we are the first pick. We are like the cream of the crop. Like there's other there's other choices and God brought us for, for, forth as the first fruits of his creatures. It was his will that we were brought forth. And for as blunt as James can be sometimes, as direct as he can be, this is why I think he is a man of grace and comfort as well. I think James knows understanding that you wrestle with evil desires will inevitably lead you down a road of questioning, man, how, how could God love me? How, does he love me? Does he still love me? Will he still love me if I mess up again? And James is bringing us into this idea, hey, 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 remember his dad vice, hand on the shoulder, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. Don't blame others for the outcome of your decisions, but remember this, God is good, gives good, and does good. God wants to do good in your life. God is good and gives good to you, even in the midst of your rebellion. Sometimes it's so easy to be like, man, I've just messed up so many times. Like, do do I disgust God? And I would encourage you to look at the cross. It's a pretty graphic scene. It's a pretty disgusting scene. But every ounce of disgust God might have towards your sin was dealt with at the cross. You might ask, "Do do I make God... Angry, like, does he, does he regret making me? I'd say, look at the cross. Any ounce of anger that God might have had towards your sin was dealt with at the cross. If we believe Jesus paid for sin's past, present, future, in that moment, and he ushered the words, it is finished... The way God feels about your sin was dealt with there. The way God feels about the result of your sin was dealt with there. James is reminding us, hey, you were not a mistake. God does not regret making you. He is actually the one who chose you of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of his truth that we are the first fruits. James is showering us with grace. God loves you. God chose you. He is good, gives good, and does good. He wants to do good in your life. I know you've messed up. You're gonna make mistakes Don't blame others for that. Own to it. But God still loves you. God's still good. God still wants you. It's dealt with on the cross. He chose you. He wants you. He brought you into this world. And ultimately, that is a good gift from the Father of lights. Amen. Look to the cross. We began tonight with an excerpt from Paul. Paul wrestling with sin in Romans chapter 7. I want to do good, but I don't. I give in to things I don't want to do. But that's not where Paul finishes his train of thought. Let's close tonight and look at another verse from Paul just a few moments later. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says this. This is after wrestling with this good and evil. Paul says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you wrestling with sin? You're going to make mistakes. Do you know Jesus? There's no condemnation for you. Are you giving in to your evil desires sometimes? You're going to make mistakes in this life. Has God given up on you? No. He chose you. He chose you. Brought you forth by his word. And in Jesus, there is no condemnation. It is actually this immense showering of grace that empowers us not to abuse grace just so that we sin more, but once we understand the beauty and the majesty and the magnificence and the awesomeness of God's grace, we actually begin to desire to walk in a way that pleases who God is because we understand how much we've been loved and showered with grace. So we desire to move away from evil all the more. I heard Charlie Boyd say this about this verse one time. He said, "You are uncondemnable because of who Jesus is." And I thought, "Wow, that's that powerful. Dad advice from James, you're going to make mistakes. Don't blame others and certainly not God. But remember this: God is good. He gives good gifts. He does good things, and He brought you into this world by the power of His Word. He chose you. It's not a mistake. He doesn't regret it. It wasn't an accident, and God is actively at work in you, doing good things in you so that good things can be accomplished through you to ultimately bring healing to this conflicting desires going on in you and the world. He has not given up on you. Your sin was dealt with at the cross. You are uncondemnable because of Jesus. Therefore, let us embrace the grace of God and move away from evil desires, understanding the Lord dangling in front of us and understanding that gives birth to death and find life in our faith in Jesus. The equation in James's mind is this. Desire leads to sin, leads to death. But if you remember from last week, trial or testing leads to endurance, which leads to life. Those who actually have a posture of seeing God is good, He does good, He gives good, actually begin to see the hard times in my life are not God making it harder for me. They're actually God making it better so that I can see where life is found, and that's in Jesus. So let us cling to life and far, far away from death as we embrace the grace of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. Thank you so much for your word, your word which leads us into truth and righteousness and grace and confronting our sin and this battle within us, but remembering it's your grace that empowers us to say no to the Lord and to the temptation and to receive the fact that We have been forgiven in Jesus, sin's been dealt with through Jesus, we're uncondemnable because of Jesus, and because of that grace, we can embrace life by overcoming sin. That is the power of the Spirit within us. So Jesus, we pray that over this room that you would help us all walk in that truth, we ask these things in your name, amen.